Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad topics, uh, along with our lightning round. As always, we include your questions and comments from the audience. We already have a number of questions that have come in the queue through email. And if you'd like to place a question, please email us either now or in between this show and next month's to info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present, I'm sorry, excuse me, is present you, our listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to be focusing on one, climate change is not just about the weather, it's about your pocketbook, and two, oil, learn how to reduce the price of oil by a dollar a gallon. Today, Ronaldo and I will also be doing our lightning round, a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And today, we're going to focus a little bit on gold. And in our financial literacy section, we're also going to be talking about the differences between mutual funds, closed-end funds, and ETFs, to try to give you at all an idea of what the differences between these three instruments are. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our listeners with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to the common person. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails, and maybe a few comments upon what you see as the latest news and how that's going to affect our listeners? Well, um, I th- thank you, Howard, for the introduction and, and um, for being uh, hosting the show again with us. Um, I think our initial topic on this one is climate change, isn't it? I mean, isn't that really where we want to focus our yes, efforts right yes. off the bat? Yes. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's uh, you know, the people who are climate change or global climate change skeptics, um, really the word skeptic implies that there's some question that you could be skeptical of. So, for, for example, somebody walked up to you in the street and you said, you know, I'm skeptical that um, – that, that we're revolving around the sun. I think the sun is revolving around Earth. That wouldn't make you skeptical, right? It would make you stupid. It would be either you're a blithering idiot or you absolutely refuse to have facts influence your process. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's some things. Flat Earth would be another one. There's no such thing as a flat Earth theory. There is no flat Earth. It's round. So if you have a flat Earth theory, that doesn't make you a skeptic. It makes you an idiot. Now, I say this because it's time we call out the stupidity and idiocy of climate change skeptics, quote-unquote, for what it is. And I'm reminded of this great quote, people very seldom hear, but it's by Albert Einstein. And his quote goes like this. The difference between genius and stupidity is that there are limits to genius. Okay? Meaning that... Excellent line. (laughs) Excellent line. No matter how smart you are, you can only be so smart. But the contrary is not true. No matter how stupid you want to be, there is no downside limit to stupidity. You can be as dumb as you want about everything you want. And the reason why I'm being this aggressive this morning is because there used to be a town called Marysville, Ohio. There used to be a town called Joplin, Missouri, and I can name many others, by the way. We're, we, we just went through one of the most extraordinary tornado events in the history of the planet. Let me give you an example of what I mean. 
14 states, thank God only 37 people dead, in 14 states, a tornado touched down and stayed on the ground for 50 consecutive miles. Just went ripping along like a freight train. To give you some idea, tornadoes, when they touch down, usually are measured in hundreds of yards, occasionally in thousands of yards, never in miles like this. Because it's the nature of a clash of two air masses, hot and cold, when it becomes so uh, enormous, when the clash is so dramatic, you get a tornado. And that it's sort of like it spits a, 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 a volume of air, in, and it spits it against each other so fast, it has to create a funnel, like uh, too much water trying to get down your bathroom drain too fast, which is exactly what it looks like, by the way. And, and that funnel can only maintain itself and keep touching the ground if the ground atmosphere clash remains horrifically strong for the entire period of time that the funnel's touching down. As soon as the pressures start to equalize because the two fronts are able to exchange air more evenly, the funnel lifts. Now, this was a Category 4 tornado. With sustained winds of 185 miles an hour or more. That it could have gone a mile or two would be an event that climatologists would notice. That it would go 50 miles without letting up bespeaks a, a level of storm clash, meaning a hot and cold air front of such massive proportions, I don't know that it would take a supercomputer to calculate the energy that was released by that storm. Now, why is this related to climate change? Very simple. Climate change is creating enormous destabilizations both in the pattern of the jet stream and in the amount of moisture in the air, because the hotter it is, the warmer it is. And, of course, everybody knows every, every year we're having another record temperature year on the planet, virtually. And, and you know, I, I think the 10, of the, the ten warmest years in, in, on record on the Earth, I think eight of them are in the last 10 years, to give you some idea how bad it's getting. So what happens is with this heat buildup, you're starting to see events that are no longer abnormal. So the new normal is if you live in the hurricane portion of this country or the tornado portion of this country, which is basically the entire southern tier of the United States, from southern Ohio down, includes Tennessee, as you can tell. Well, that, that tier, it is sort of an arc. It's an arc that starts down uh, kind of in Texas, the, 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 the eastern side of Texas, and goes and cuts across. If you picture an arc in your mind that cuts across Tennessee, you get a sense of what's below that line, which is, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida. These patterns are so dramatic now that we need to talk about them, not because we're environmentally concerned, and I am, but because it's now going to impact people's wallets in material ways. What do I mean by that? Well, we identified in this show a year ago that Florida, for the first time, is experiencing a net out-migration, meaning there are more people leaving Florida than coming to Florida. Why is that? Well, you could say the housing market busted nothing. Yes, but why aren't people now moving back to Florida buying those houses? And typically, remember, Florida was the number one destination for what were called snowbirds, or people leaving the cold of the east to retire in the, in, in, in the warm Florida sun. And, the, and it was an easy climate to live in. Uh, it was... A, the nice cost of living relative to Manhattan, certainly. Uh, it had a. Uh, it was very attractive in the sense that um, affordable housing, uh, and I could go on and on. 
Now, the problem is, and why we're now having a net migration, I mean, people, more people leaving the state than coming to Florida, is even if your house wasn't decimated in the last five hurricane seasons, and, of course, many were, and many businesses were, your insurance for your home has gotten so high that if you came to Florida because you were retired and you liked being on a fixed income and you wanted to make sure you could calculate your expenses, it's no longer affordable in Florida. Even though the houses are cheaper, the insurance keeps going up, and that is a pattern that will not stop. In other words, that's irreversible. So if you think the prices of Florida real estate are bad today in the year 2012, I will guarantee you that they will be worse in the year 20, uh, in, in, in 2022. So 10 years from today, far worse than they are today. And in 2032, not habitable, meaning I think the whole state's a write-off. Not the whole state, but two-thirds of it. Why? Because you're going to have enormous climate events that will continue to chip away at the affordability. So I'm going to go out a bit on a limb here, Howard. and I, 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 I haven't said this publicly yet, but I'm going to say it now for the first time, and I think I'd like people to hold me accountable, and I hope I live long enough to find out if the statement I'm about to make is true. In the next 10 to 20 years, there will be a net migration of people totally living below that arc I just described from eastern Texas through Tennessee, meaning the entire southern tier of the United States will have fewer people living in it 10 to 20 years from today than they have today. Now you say, well, how could that be? Because as housing gets cheaper and, you know, and then and relative to other parts of the country, people will be moving in there, and won't it, won't it even out as it always has? And the answer is no, it won't. Because when you make a place so dangerous that it keeps getting walloped by tornadoes and hurricanes that you can't possibly rebuild, and by the way, Joplin, Missouri has not been fully rebuilt, and there's still 300,000 people that haven't returned to New Orleans. And New Orleans will get walloped again, you can be sure. So I'm, I'm seeing a pattern that now has to be taken into effect. If you are a business person and you are planning where to put your next plant, if you're planning where to locate your enterprise, you really need to know that the South is going to be an unsafe place for you. I don't care how good the labor laws are, if you're retrogressive and think you're going to beat the unions by going down there. The benefit of beating the union isn't as strong as the fact that if you build the plant in Michigan, it will stand. And if you build it in Alabama or Mississippi or, or Georgia, it likely will get flattened or otherwise damaged by environmental events. Why is that? Proximity to the Gulf Coast. We can talk more if you want about the proximity to the Gulf Coast and why it creates this clash why the warm air and water of the Gulf Coast will create inevitably a violent, increasingly violent clash with uh, the jet stream coming from the north. But even if we have shorter winters, which we will, and even if we have very highly unusual winters, it was 47 degrees yesterday in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Um, my daughter, who lives in Minneapolis, sent me a picture four weeks ago of one of her dogs lying in the grass that needed to be mowed, and she sent me that picture in the middle of February in Minnesota. So even though some places in the northern part of the United States may actually become more attractive, the southern tier is going to proceed to get more and more walked. Now, why does that affect you as a listener? Well, if you own a business and you're listening, or you run a business, or you're thinking of relocating or adding capacity as the economy grows, which it will continue to do, then you need to know that you are going to be making a mistake if you locate it below that arc. Now, what if you don't own a business? What if you're just a normal person? When you, ha when you create situations where it's not safe for business to keep adding below that line, 
that it's really important to know that the jobs in that area also will be a problem. Oh, and by the way, your insurance costs will go up, and if you get knocked over one time and you rebuild, you'll get knocked over again. Does that mean that every tornado will hit the exact same spot? No, not of course it won't. But you're in a belt, an environmentally hazardous belt, and that environmentally hazardous belt is going to continue to see deterioration that will be trackable, identifiable, and over the time in the next 10 to 20 years, people will get it, and as the migration occurs outward, you will see a drop in the total economic well-being of those areas. And they'll have to return to doing things which are less dependent on violent weather patterns. They'll also well, no, do things that are less dependent on, uh, on rainfall. Let me, let me pause here for a moment and play devil's advocate here. Um, there are a lot of people out there, and I don't even want to go into they're the skeptics, just people out there who would say that, one, weather records are have maybe been kept for less than 100 years. Two, the monitoring of weather is really still in its infancy. And that going back and saying this is the warmest year on record is really to say that in the past few decades we have technology that says temperatures are slightly up. But that really establishing a long-term historic track record uh, for climate and whether these particular events that we see, I mean, was Katrina a result of global weather weirdness or was it a typical blip in the pattern of, of hurricanes? Yeah. Um, were, any, were these tornadoes, a, as severe as they may have been, a blip triggered yeah. by yeah. Okay. So, uh, you so, know, so, standard routine events that we simply have not a track record to say, oh, you know, every hundred years we get storms like this, every thousand years we get storms like this. Okay. So first of all, I'm going back to my quote from Einstein. The only difference between genius and stupidity is there are limits to genius. I can take, and if we had the time, Howard, I would be delighted to point by point demonstrate how foolish those thoughts you just gave are. Thank you. However, <laughs> you're, no, no, I'm serious. But, but the problem is, you see, and remember, my last book was on climate change. Mm-hmm. 535 pages of in-depth research and I don't know how many thousand footnotes. So I'm really happy to, to talk about how we know what we know about climate change and I'm more than happy to share the science. What I'm not willing to do is to have somebody come up to me off the street who hasn't done their homework to even read the most basic things to ask me questions like, and posit these statements. Let me start with your question about your statement that weather records have only been kept for 100 years. Not true. Actually, we've kept them in the United States since the 1700s. Actually, the mid-1700s. Most people don't know that. Why? I don't know why they don't know it, but what do you think poor Richard's Almanac was? It was a weather-keeping device. And by the way, not only, not only told you what happened, it predicted what would happen next year. The standard counter for that would be from someone who's trying to challenge information, and whether they're accurate or not is almost irrelevant, is, well, what was the quality of the monitoring of the, that information 200 years ago? No, no, no. My point is, I took your statement at face value. Mm-hmm. See what I did? You said, we've only been measuring for 100 years. No, the farmer, Farmer's Almanac and Poor Richard's Almanac, Farmer's Almanac particularly, has been keeping it for 200 years. So it's not, it, it, it's not that we don't have records. And you say, well, gee, they didn't keep their records that good then. That's silly. The other thing I can tell you, how about 750,000 years of ice core records, which we now have? 750,000 years. How about 300 million years 
of ocean bed sediment records. By the way, let me just footnote that. Do people realize that from sediment records, we now know that the ocean has a higher acidity level than it's had in 300 million years? I want to repeat that, 300 million years. Well, that's quite a statement. How does and, it happen? It happens. And one, one of the things I want to mention about acidity in water is it hampers reproduction and reminding well, people that. Well, alone, that, that alone. Well, not only that, but acidity in water means that you're going to you're going to continue to experience massive uh, sea life die off of two kinds, both the kind that we eat, fish, and the kind that creates the oxygen in the ocean, coral reefs. And in 40 percent of the coral reefs in the world are now dead or dying. So you're talking about. And, and by the way, notice I just started throwing statistics at you because you kept talking. In other words, mm-hmm. if, you, if anybody that wants to have this conversation in a thoughtful way and say, gee, how do we know this, how do we know that, great, there are answers, how we know it. Don't tell me you think the earth is flat, how can I prove it's round? Ask me the intelligent question, how do I know it's round? That's a good question, because it is round. But if you start with the premise, gee, I'm not sure if climate change is real or not, then you're going to ask me to debate angels on the head of a pin. I'm not going to waste my time, because you know what the truth is? I made a lot of money last year and the year before in the recession through my investments, as you well know how, because I chose to look at information without a preconceived notion. I didn't say, what do I want the answer to be? I said, oh, my God, we're going into a financial crisis. I better do this, this, and that. And as, as you know from the show, we've started projecting as recently as December, January of this year, a much stronger economy. We were the first significant voice I know that said that the economy will grow at 2 to 3%, could actually hit 3% GDP this year. I don't know anybody that argued that up until like three weeks ago when finally Tim Geithner said the same number. So I believe that the reason we are accurate and the reason that this show is so valuable to people is because we're doing it without a filter. And because I'm not looking at it with a filter, I don't ask silly questions like, is there climate change, which would lead me into all kinds of useless activities. When I say to myself, how do we know what the climate change is? How, do we, how, can we, how can we predict what will likely happen from climate change? That's, I, mean, how do, I need to know what the effects of this are going to be. If someone wants to argue to me, at, for example, I don't want to, I, I'm not going to bother asking myself if I'm going to fall off the edge of a flat earth and, and some dragon will eat me. What I want to know is what are the implications for my navigation techniques when I go from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere? So they change dramatically. I want to know how to adapt to the information that's useful. I want to know how to use that information. And so for our listeners, what I want you to do is anytime someone says to you, gee, I'm not sure if climate change is real, go, you know, let me quote Albert Einstein to you. And the second thing you say is, what do you think about the flat earth theory? And they say, well, that's silly. Yeah, it's not a theory. Just because I call it a flat earth theory doesn't make it a theory. It's, 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 it's a foolish statement. So if you're going to have a serious conversation with anybody and they want to posit to you, they don't know if climate change is real, say, no problem. When you figure out it is, let's have a conversation about the impact on you. And when I say impact, I don't mean just your wallet, although the impact on your wallet will be severe and direct if you're not careful. I mean your life. Why would you put yourself in a situation where you will be perpetually at risk to storms of extraordinarily violent capacity if you don't have to? Why would you put yourself, and we'll give you a better example, why would you move to an island which is about to be destroyed, there are 12 of them in the world right now, by climate change? Why would you move there? Right. You I, had a, I had a brother who 
very wisely moved out of the South Pacific and sold his holdings there because their sea level at his, on his island was one foot above sea level. Yeah, yeah. and, and by reason. the way, if you if you look at places like the Maldives, which is famous for this because they led the climate change discussions in Copenhagen, the Maldives not only have had sea rise incur, occur, which it has globally, but you get with sea rise, you get erosion. And there are, I mean, you, there are endless hours of footage that the Maldivian government collected of the destruction of their shoreline, where they couldn't hold it back, and they were trying. First, they tried sandbagging the ocean, which you can't do. Then they tried dumping concrete blocks and sandbags, which you can't do. Now there is a solution, but it isn't, it isn't sandbags and concrete bunkers to try and hold the to try and hold the ocean back. Nothing holds the ocean back. And remember, what happens in climate change when it destroys an island? is first come the storms, which sweep over the island. The salt water permeates through the soil, basically disrupts the meniscus of water beneath the island, causing the surface tension of the fresh water below the island to change relative to the seawater. The seawater and the fresh water intermingle, and from that point forward, there is no more fresh water. So the first thing that dies on an island is not that it goes blub, 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 blub beneath the ocean. The first thing that happens is it loses its fresh water, so it can't sustain human life. Nor so can it contain um, plant life because most plants will right. die with too much salt. But let me let me interrupt for a second. Oh, wait, that's again, exactly how the Romans killed Carthage, as you recall. Yes, once they actually, got once they destroyed they, it, they sold salt. They sold the, the land. Yes, um, there have a number of emails that have come in on on this uh, topic, and I wanted to sort of paraphrase some of the questions here um, and have you respond to those. One of them is asking, and it's not just asking, you know, oh, people are idiots and they're denying it, but People are motivated for economic reasons to deny climate change, short-term economic reasons, obviously. But the question is, who are these groups, and what is their what what are they saying, and what can we be done about them to to change this conversation? Well, first of all, um, a significant group, um, senior executives from traditional industries, because of their age, are leaving the stage through natural attrition, die off. I mean, the older you get, the more of you are gone. Uh, I mean, an example would be Bob Lutz, uh, vice chairman, former vice chairman of Chrysler, uh, General Motors. Uh, Chrysler General Motors. I think he was both, actually. He worked in both companies. I think he was vice chairman, though, at uh, Chrysler. So embarrassed himself on television just a few nights ago basically arguing that he didn't think climate change was real. Now, that's because he was in the automobile industry. Lutz was one of the characters, by the way, that drove the industry into the ground, literally drove the industry into the ground, the automobile industry. And if you talk to, for example, the current CEO of General Motors, or you talk to somebody like Alan Mulally, who runs Ford successfully through the last recession, those guys aren't, they're not confused. They know climate change is real. Why? Because they have to be pragmatic, realistic people in order to survive in the world we live in. When you have pragmatic senior executives in any industry, they will tend, as they get younger, to be more perceptive of these these huge questions because guys like Lutz grew up. He grew up in an era where people didn't even have this in their conscience as a possibility. So basically what he's saying is, I'm too old to learn. So I just want to put that as category one. I'm too old to learn. And unfortunately, that represents a lot of people. So when you ever get in the 55-plus category, increasingly people become less and less willing to learn. They become more and more resistant to information and education. 
and because the world they know is not the world we now have. When you talk to 20-year-olds, you don't have that problem because they're trying to figure out where the world's going. Secondly, a, a lot of categories is... of industries. Hmm? Right. Okay, categories of industries. Um, I think you can expect the mining industry uh, is putting out all kinds of stuff that's uh, really uh, ridiculous on climate change, and they're, they're for it. Before they were confusing the conversation. Clearly, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for its own silly reasons, and they're very powerful, they're controlled by 35 companies, and they're extremely powerful. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is clearly wrong on climate science, and which means all the local Chamber of Commerce that take their lead from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, likewise, are wrong on this issue. I, mean, I, I, I would US have to, to say, Ronaldo, that a lot of the enormous resistance I hear on the local level. Uh, is, again, coming from small chambers, small businesses, who somehow, despite whatever intelligent rhetoric and conversation there is about climate change, all they see is the short-term, like, you're killing me with more regulations. How am I going to survive my business? And that force seems to have a lot of political clout and a lot of political currency um, among the groups we're talking about. Yeah, well, look, when... when, when... <laughs> There's nothing new about people resisting science. Remember, um, probably uh, probably the, the scientist that we owe most, the modern world is built mostly on the theory of a man named Copernicus, who was told to recant the scientific theory of the solar system, or he would be put to death by the Pope. And my guess is that 99% or more of the population agreed with the Pope at that time. In the same vein, um, virtually 100% of the ancient world of the West before the year 1400, certainly before the year 1200, thought that the Earth was flat. Now, a few people survived a trip to what is modern-day Mexico from Spain, start taking gold and cacao out of there, and so they started changing their mind because people came back. But it took a long time, centuries, for people to change because so many people had to die off who grew up believing that truth, believing that fiction, and they weren't willing to hear the truth. And you had to have way, way more people going to, to the, quote, new world and coming back. And there were all kinds of people who said, well, they got to the new world, but that means the new world must be on this side of the drop-off, and the Earth's still flat. Because I can't imagine, how could the world not be flat? Wouldn't the ship that goes south fall off the globe? Because they didn't understand gravity, and they didn't understand centrifugal force. So it, it takes a long time for, people's, for, for society to change. The problem we have today is we're out of time. Uh, one of the most capable climatologists in the world, Professor Lawrence McGard, who is the uh, chairman of the U.S.-Japanese Joint Climatological Panel, which is probably one of the two or three best climatological panels of the 2,000 scientists who track this stuff, um, shared with me, after my book came out, we had a great session, and shared with me that he thought that we were, for all intents and purposes, past the tipping point. Let me describe that for people on this call. The tipping point means that the human contagion called the, 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 the contagion called human beings has become so infectious to the biosphere that the biosphere now is going to have to fight the contagion. The immune system of the planet has to kick back now and reduce human population because the humans got out of control. So the biosphere, mother, the, power, the full power of Mother Nature, is going to be unleashed on the human society, on human civilization. Because when you're past the tipping point, it means that the fever we gave the planet is now doing more damage to the planet than anything we do every day ourselves. So if all the humans disappeared today, we still would 
have increasing climate change issues for a very long time. We're past the tipping point. Why is that? Because, as we were talking earlier today, Howard, you've got these rivers from Russia flowing into the North Pole, and they can't, the water isn't freezing. It creates a great glom of non-freezing water where, this, where this, the flow of water in, in water, and it should have been hitting ice, but the North Pole is now frosted, so to speak. So it, it, it further accelerates the heating of the North, but the North Pole is already getting hotter and hotter because of the amount of ice reflecting the sun back was getting lower and lower. All the glaciers in the world are melting, which means that there's less light being reflected back in space. Um, the, 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 the big one, of course, uh, the biggest one right now is the off-gassing of methane from the permafrost regions, which are no longer, quote, permanently frozen. So we have this situation where the planet is so sick right now that it's now doing more damage to itself, even as we, the humans, continue to damage it further by pouring, pouring more gas in the metaphorical flame, by increasing our CO2 production. And that CO2 production is getting so high that when it mixes with seawater, it becomes carbolic acid. And that's why the oceans are acidifying. We're creating enormous quantities of carbolic acid. Now, that die-off of marine life, how many people on the planet survive on fish or products of the ocean? What happens to those people when the fish are gone? And increasingly, as you know, virtually all the major fisheries on the planet are crashing, they're collapsing. So what, what we have to look at now is not what's going to be the problem for my um, one-year-old grandson. My, 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 actually, I have a grandson right now that's um, basically three weeks old. I, 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 I can't say, gee, is he going to have a bad situation when he's, uh, when he's 85. I can tell you right now, in, that little bo- in less than 100 years, Billions and billions and billions of people, I suspect at least six billion, will die from climate change. Now, when you've got something that enormous, when, when the revolver staring at your temple has got six billion bullets in it, you better stop and think it's time to quit playing a game for political purposes. It's time to stop worrying about your short-term profits. Can I, can I sell more another barrel of gas and a barrel of oil? Can I dig out another lump of coal and get my money before the world stops me from polluting the atmosphere or destroying the planet? We're way past that. Now, if people understood that, two things would happen. Number one, they would bring political pressure to bear to not only stop the insanity of increasing CO2 production, they would actually demand that their governments take actions to restore the planet's health, so-called geoengineering. Important, critical, the most important science today in the world is geoengineering because it's the science of studying how we're going to restore the planet to health and make it habitable again by humans. Because remember, 100 years from today, the planet's going to be just fine. It's the billions of people that won't be here that aren't so good. And what's left of human civilization is going to be a complete and terrible mess. And I just want to point out one thing to people, and then we can change the topic to something else, if you like. And that is, I'm sure no one thought that the Dark Ages could ever happen. But they did. Ronaldo, Ronaldo, I'm going to stop you for a moment, because we may have a technical glitch here, and I'm not sure you're connected properly. So I'm going to open up one of these lines here from one of our listeners and ask them if they can hear you and make sure that we're okay on this. So, sure. Okay. Um, I've got a weird signal here on the station. Even though I'm hearing you, I'm not sure our speakers are. So I'm going to open up a line. This one is area code 808. It's 1993. And I'm going to ask you, are you able to hear, Ronaldo? This is line number It's an 808 area code. One nine nine three. Can you hear me? Yes. And can you hear Ronaldo? I'm not hearing a response. Let me try another number from someone. 
I hate doing this, but I uh, want to make sure we're actually getting through. Um, okay, this one is area code 716. The last four numbers are 8688. I'm going to open up your line. And can you hear Ronaldo? Yes. You yes. can. Okay. I've heard everything. I'm a little break up. Okay. We're going to close back, and I think we're okay to continue going, Ronaldo. Okay, Sorry thank about you. that. Yeah. Um, so so the, 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 I was talking about the Dark Ages, and, and people didn't believe, I'm sure in Western Europe, that something could go so bad or so wrong that for 600 years, Howard, the entire Western civilization went backwards. And when I say went backwards, it not only got deplorable to live in those conditions, we forgot how to make cement. The Romans knew how to make cement. We forgot. And it took us 600 years to get it back. Okay? So until the Renaissance broke out in the 1400s, this Western civilization that we're so fond of went backwards and we began living like primitives again. And I want people to realize that is a warning. Don't think that it can't happen to us. In fact, it's going to for sure unless we stop it. And the science of learning how to stop it is called geoengineering. It's how do you make the planet, Earth, habitable again by humans? Because the trajectory we are on, if we do nothing at this point, and if we stopped emitting CO2 tomorrow morning, the trajectory we're on is a non-inhabitable planet for the vast majority of human civilization. We're not just talking about the ocean being a new, the new um, uh, sea level being 160 to 180 feet higher, but we're talking about temperatures at that new sea level, which would not permit agriculture to occur. We're talking about uh, the wars for water, which have been going on for centuries, which are accelerating. Did you know that 1.2 billion people today on the planet don't have clean water? One point, safe water, 1.7 billion don't have adequate water. So we're talking about things that are already badly broken. When all those glaciers in the high Himalayan plateau are gone in the next 15, 20 years, when those are gone, there's no more Ganges. There's 1.3 billion people right there that are going to be out of water. What are these people going to do? Well, they're going to start crossing each other's territory to survive and get water. And that's going to lead to unprecedented violence, just as it did in the Middle Ages. So how did they deal with that violence in the Middle Ages? They retreated into castles and compounds, and they hid out where they were living in intense, unhealthy, unclean conditions, which led to the bubonic plague, among other things. So we, you're, we have to realize, folks, we have a little humility. Humans have got to realize that we are here at the sufferance of Mother Nature, and we must now begin to heal some of the fever that we caused. In fact, I would say that we are the fever. Right. To do Before that, we, we go on too much longer, Ronaldo, because we are pressing against our, our ever-present clock, let me switch you for a moment into, like, what can we do um, on a positive side? And, and how do, can our listeners take positive action relative to this issue? Okay. First of all, I always prefer the positive than the negative. Uh, I want to repeat something that many of you have heard me say innumerable times over the last decade. I've never heard of, seen or read about a problem that can't be solved with today's technology and resources. Okay? So we got the solutions available to us. I know we can solve this. To do so, however, requires a change of will. It takes a, we have to have volition. We have to choose to change it. And in order to change it, we have to say, what's, what's possible? Okay, well, here's the opposite, the flip side. The amount of wealth that was created between 1946 and 1966, which, by the way, 46, as you know, was the, the year with the highest ratio of debt to GDP in the history of America, so the fact that we've got debt doesn't prevent us from doing this. In fact, this is the way to get rid of our debt. The 
amount of wealth created from 46 to 66 basically created the entire platform of wealth that we live on to this day in all global society. Now, we did that because we flattened Europe and Japan, and the whole world needed rebuilding, and so we did. And in rebuilding the world, not with, with arms, but by rebuilding the roads and the sewers and the schools and the hospitals, we created a level of wealth the world has never seen before. I want to go on record saying the amount of wealth we can create in a similar 20-year period is a multiple of what we created between 46 and 66. Our debt as a nation, for example, the United States, will become such a small fraction of GDP, no one would even talk about worrying about it, as we didn't in 1966. So the, the, the upside is this, and then I want to apply it to people's direct pocketbooks. The upside is not only do we have to fix this issue, but don't say, gee, I don't know climate change is real. It's real. The real question is, how do we understand it, how do we predict its effects, and how do we ameliorate those effects? That's the intelligent conversation. Now, if you live with people in your family or your friends who aren't ready to accept climate change with the science we now have as real, don't argue with them, bless them, and let them go on their way. Work with the people who get it. And together we will figure out ways not only how we can collectively save human society, we'll actually figure out how you can make more money doing it. How do you put more money in your pocketbook? How do you do better for your family in this condition? Well, knowledge is power. So if you know what's coming, you will be prepared for it, and no matter what turn in the road it is, you will do better because you will rise above those people who choose to be know-nothings. So it's directly in your economic interests, it's in your, the safety of your family's interests, and it's in your interest as a human trying to save a planet. We can do it. We can do it, Howard. In fact, we nope. should, and, and, and the sciences will create doing it. Just switching from fossil fuel to the planetary fuel system right now is a fossil fuel system. Switching to renewables alone will unleash an extraordinary amount of wealth. More jobs will get created. More, more wealth will be created. More, you, you can't even imagine how good it will be. We'll look back at the year 2012 and go, wow, we were living like primitives compared to what we're living like now. Because when you take the cost of energy and you make it such a tiny percentage of overall economic activity like it should be, like it was back in 1900, when you dethrone the oil companies and the coal companies who've been sucking us dry for all these decades. It turns out all that wealth they've been taking, it's redistributed into massively more productive ways, and we all do better. I see a world in which the same dream I had as a young man that I took advantage of is, I want to see free education for every person in the Western world, in many parts of the world it's already true, just not the U.S., free education through postgraduate level if you've got the ability to get there. No debt coming out of 100 or 200,000 in loans, student loans. I see, it, I see a society capable of having one person earn enough money that a family of four could be very comfortable upper middle class. I could go on and go on and on. In fact, I would like questions. For have, I'd like people to ask me how that can be achieved. And by the way, I, not only would I love answering them, you'd be surprised at how fast it could be achieved. I'll make a statement and then I'll quit. Okay, because we, we are today. running long. And as, I can produce, as usual, I can, it tends to be our, our problem here, but go ahead. I can, I can produce a kilogram of hydrogen, which is worth two gallons of gas equivalent, today for about $3.50 a gallon. Why aren't we doing that? When I'm looking at $4.50 a gallon gas today in California, enough of that. Obviously, the politics of it is what stops it, and people's choices are what stops it. Okay. Well, let's, let's segue into an abbreviated version of our lightning round. I know you wanted to talk about gold. Um, so let's do that quickly, and then... I think we're going to have to switch back to our last topic on, on oil specifically. Sure. Gold real fast. Um, 
gold, um, I, I want people to know that I started selling my gold holdings last week, about 10 days ago, at around 1700 um, I'm assuming today, what is it, 16-something today, Howard? I think so. I don't have the exact yeah, number, the last but couple yeah, of shows, a little under 1700 Yeah, I've been saying the last couple of shows that I said, you know, several months now, I've been saying, you know, I'm, I'm a hold on gold, I'm not a buyer or sell. Keep holding your gold. Uh, I, I'm, I sold because I think there will be enough advance warning to get back into gold, which we will give on this show if it becomes a problem that you have to own gold either as a, fledge against, a, a hedge against inflation, which is one reason, or a panic investment, you're afraid of, you know, some calamity. Or if you think you want to own gold because of inflation pressures, which will also occur, for either reason, we'll be able to tell you months ahead of time on this show. I don't think gold is going to go up in the short term enough to make it worth my while to have my cash there when I can be making substantial profitable returns in other investments, and I can always return to gold when I want to, because it doesn't, it doesn't make me money if it's not going up and it's, it hasn't been going up for a while. And I don't right. think it's, it's actually trading at sixteen ninety five at, yeah, at the moment. There you have it. Yeah. So and I, and I, you know, it, it could it go to seventeen or eighteen? Sure, you know. But at the end of the day, if gold goes from sixteen to eighteen, I still did fine because I got out at seventeen and change. And you know, it's 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 insig- percentage changes is insignificant when I can get six to ten percent returns for safe in safe ways in the marketplace. Very good. Well, okay. On that note, how about commercial uh, real estate? Want to hit that and and, and uh, housing? Uh, up to you. Um, yeah, like I said, we're, we want to get back to oil. Uh, got good news for the state of Hawaii. Your housing market is about to, uh, is very close to the bottom right now. Uh, I'm going to say that most states in the United States, it's either bottomed out or already started on the uptick. Uh, some places that will be harder to come through than others, Florida, because of climate issues, as I mentioned, and uh, Nevada for other reasons. Um, and by the way, Nevada's got other pressures that are going to start hitting it because of climate. So I'm not a big fan of Nevada for any uh, real estate, but for the rest of the country, uh, domestic real estate going up. We had more transactions in homes uh, last month than we've had in four years. Uh, so first, the volume of transactions builds, which is what's occurring, and and we sop up the foreclosure mess. Uh, what the government has done recently with the foreclosure, the robo robo signing settlement, all has going to help the housing market to further firm. There are many other things I could point to that will cause it to firm. Uh, I also just want to touch quickly on Greek bonds. For those of you who don't know, um, there's been a lot of scare. As of yesterday, the stock market fell a couple hundred points. That was just the market playing with itself. The truth is, I've I felt for a long time, I've told people on the show, the Greek bonds would get would get paid. They are going to get paid. And in fact, as of today, uh, 80% of the private bondholders have accepted the Greek downgrade, which is more than 50% loss to them. The law only required them to get 66 and two-thirds, so the Greek bond debt deal is done. Now, does that matter to us? and a cosmic or large planetary scale. No, I told you the Greek thing long ago is, is a minor, minor issue. But what it does is it takes some short-term pressure off so that the long-term solution, which we have not heard yet, but which we're supposed to see later this month from Angela Merkel, the long-term solution to the fact that the European Monetary Union has to have some greater political fiscal union if it's going to work in the long haul. I guess that's all i got time for today. Uh, yeah, because we do have to get back to oil. That is our final topic. And again, the approach to it is how do we learn to reduce the price of oil by a dollar a gallon? Fun. Here's this a good one. If only the people, and as you know, Howard, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, I'm independent, but if you took just the people who want to see Obama get reelected, let's assume that that's roughly 50% of the population. I think it's around 46, 47%. But say 50% of the population. If 50% of the population, which is the pro Obama sector, 
just the Obamas, no Republicans, no, no, I'm just talking Tea Party, nobody but just pro-Obama people, stop driving, excuse me, reduce their driving by five percentage points. So that's like not taking the extra trip to the supermarket. It's not saying you can't go see Aunt Matilda when you want to. It's not saying you can't do your normal commuting. It just says reduce your driving by 5%. Be thoughtful about your driving. That will translate into 2.5% consumption drop in the U.S. With the glut on world markets today, I think it will crack the back of the speculation. Right now, the reason the price of oil is where it is is strictly because of speculation, meaning it's not supply and demand. There is a surplus of oil right now. And in fact, if people don't know this, I think I said on the show a month ago, we exported more refined petroleum products from the U.S. than we imported. I'll repeat, for the first time in I don't know how many decades, we exported more petroleum-based products than we imported. We're a net exporter of petroleum refined products. Largely, by the way, because we're taking so much oil out of Canada, refining it in our refineries in the Gulf, and then shipping it over to Asia. But the point being, we are now sitting in a situation where there's such a glut of oil that if people would reduce their driving, just the pro-Obama people, by 5%, that additional 2.5% of surplus is more extra oil than the market can possibly hold, no matter how many old tankers they got floating off the coast filled with oil to the, filled to the brim with oil, just in order to keep the price up. The other thing that could happen is, as you know, 70 congressional leaders, I guess two days ago, uh, petitioned the uh, CFTC to put their, their anti-speculation rules in place. Clearly, and by the way, Goldman Sachs three days ago said the reason for the price of oil is speculation. So it's not like we have a, a, a supply and demand situation. So I'm calling on the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, do your job, break the back of the speculation. Um, if the head of Exxon um, recently said correctly, as he did, that um, at least $40 per barrel in the price of gas is due to speculation, that's the head of Exxon Mobil talking. Come on, $40 a barrel, that's a lot. That's almost 40%. So we can drop the price of oil by more than a dollar a gallon, but if you want to drop it by a dollar real quick, just those of you who want to see Obama elected, lower, reduce your drive by 5%, that alone will break the back of the speculation. But the CFTC should do its job, and so should the Congress. Right. It's an interesting statistic in the uh, New York Times the other week that right now we only import 44.8% of our um uh, oil usage from overseas, and that as recently as 2005, we were importing 60%. So the actual consumption of overseas oil in the United States has dropped um, almost by 25%. It's a very significant number. Very significant. And I would I would say that the total amount of surplus in the world today of oil is probably getting close to 1.5% or more. And remember, you've got two things going on here that have to stay – whether they – See, the Russians have to keep pumping oil whether they like it or not because it's what's going to keep Putin in power. So, and they're doing about 10 million barrels a day, I believe. So the Russians can't reduce their supply if they want to. The Saudi Arabians have the same problem. They can't much reduce supply because they've got to keep that welfare state intact so they don't get toppled, the, 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 you know, the House of Saud. So if you look at all this speculation that's occurring, it makes Russia rich, it makes... Saudi Arabia rich, it makes every it makes everybody Iran gets richer. All the countries we don't want to help all get richer, we get poorer. And you want know how much it is? This is amazing. In 2011, Howard, a guy named Dr. Mark Cooper of the Consumer Federation of America documented really well that, that the speculation in 2011, which is much lower than it is today, was costing the average American six hundred dollars per year in extra gasoline expenditures. 
That's a lot of money. Everybody listening to this, do you really want to keep writing checks for $600 a year more than you should to the oil companies? That's not your total bill for fuel. That's the excess that has nothing to do with supply and demand. And what we're in is a period now of speculation, and that's wrong. Our government should be stepping up, and I'm calling on President Obama. Do your job, Mr. President. Break the back of the speculation. Do take every tool you've got, every, to use your metaphor, Mr. President, take every club you've got in the bag and get this thing down because it's hurting America, it's hurting the world, and it's helping our worst enemies. You know, as long ago as a month, this is six weeks back, um, I started seeing news articles filtering through the AP wire service and so forth, all talking about that oil was going to be going up before it ever actually did, before there was any speculation. And the ultimate source of most of those articles was the oil industry itself. Of course. So what you have is the oil industry in this almost three, fourfold part action. One, as the economy picks up, the oil industry, which, as we, as we know, tends to uh, be a foe of Obama and the Democrats, they seem to be wanting to slow down the economic recovery. And, and stop me if you think I'm wrong here. Slow down the economic recovery by adding an extra tax to everyone's life through the increase in oil prices. Then, like the Koch brothers, to turn around, take their excess profits, and use those profits to campaign against Obama and the Democrats uh, through things like the Tea Party, which they founded. And then thirdly, blame Obama for the rise in prices. It, yeah, I, it, 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 to me, it's a phenomenal strategy that that seems actually to to work to a certain extent well, it because it convinces does. a lot of people that, that our president is the problem and not the industry itself. Yeah, see, it usually does work. I predict it won't work this time, and I'll tell you why. I think they made a calc. First of all, they're very greedy, as you know. So this is all built on greed. And one of the reasons they don't like Obama is not because they're. Um, I think there are a lot of people who don't like Obama because he's black. I think that's true. I don't want to dismiss that there's racism afoot. But that's not why they don't like Obama. Why they don't like Obama is they are afraid that if he brings renewable energies in, if he gets reelected, renewable energies are going to really spike in this country. Really. We're going to start to catch up with Germany. We're going to start to catch up with Norway and Sweden. Okay? It's not like we're ahead anymore. We're way behind the pack in converting to renewables. And they're afraid that if Obama gets reelected, that's what will happen to them. And then what happens? Remember, an oil company is valued by two things. One, their profits, which, as everybody knows, is egregious. If you want to know do they like high oil prices, watch their quarterly profit returns. They're astronomically beyond anything that's reasonable. A business that makes those kind of profits that long, you can assume, is breaking one or more rules of the game. Because you can't have that kind of profit that long unless you're truly violating a rule of the game. But the second thing that keeps them valuable is the value of their oil reserves in the ground. Now, it's interesting that when you push up the price of a barrel of oil, it means their balance sheet goes up because it's now their valuation of what's in the ground goes higher, and their profits go up because they get to sell more at a higher – well, sell the same or more at a higher price. So what they've done is they've said even though we're not selling as much this year as we sold last year by 1% to 2%, we're going to make profits that are 10 to 15% higher. Think about that. Now, why do people put up with that? Only because – they are willing to be deluded. They're, they're not willing to do their homework to think through these very difficult issues and really dig into it and say, you know what, my personal well-being depends on my getting smarter and learning more. That's what people, and it also depends on me becoming a proactive member of the democracy so that my ballot isn't bought by silly advertising. You know, I'm watching the um, 
the Republican primaries, as I'm sure everyone is. And one of the things I'm fascinated by, and I certainly don't agree with Rick Santorum on his contraception issues, and I certainly don't agree with him on, on a whole variety of social issues. But what I find fascinating that Santorum's doing is that Romney's outspending this guy 10 to 1 usually, and people aren't getting fooled. Romney was believed to be the presumptive nominee because he had so much money of his own and because everybody in business wants it. Well, except for people like me. So the, the point is, why is it that Romney's not sweeping the field? Well, it's because Santorum, with far less money, probably a tenth of the money that Romney spent, is able to communicate to people, and people are going, you know what, no matter how much Romney says about this guy, we're not going to believe it. Now, the fact that they're not believing it for reasons that I don't particularly agree with is irrelevant. That act of choosing to make up your own mind in the face of massive advertising is really the critical issue. And let me give you one last point on this. I am infuriated, and I very, I, I'm not, I haven't lost my temper, but I'm so upset when I see these ads day after day after day about how you can create a million new jobs by drilling more and extracting more coal from the ground and burning it. That is so insane. It's bad economics. Environmentally, it's suicidal. And it's clear that we are paying for those ads by the fact that we've been hijacked, where we've been held up by, by gangsters worse than Dillinger ever was. These oil companies and coal companies, and they're using our money to buy our Congress back and to convince us of a great lie. And, and the lie is we're goes, better off with oil and coal than we are without it, and that's not true. Right. Much of this goes back to the Citizens United case that yes. has given these super PACs almost unlimited ability to uh, manipulate and fund candidates. It's true. Very true. That's a big part of it. It's a huge part of it. And by the way, if you notice, people are starting to get wise to that because they're seeing the impact that one mega-billionaire like uh, Adelson can have. Adelson's worth, I don't know, a few, I don't know, $20 billion, whatever he's worth, it, the, the gambling magnet. He's taking his gambling profits, and he single-handedly has funded New Gingrich. There wouldn't be a New Gingrich in this race but for Adelson. By the way, I suspect that the person putting Adelson up to that money these days is probably Mitt Romney. He's probably told Adelson, we'll take care of Adelson, we'll take care of you if I, Romney, get elected. Keep funding Gingrich because I don't want to have to run against Santorum without Gingrich in the race. Because Gingrich and Santorum are splitting the conservative vote, as you know. Interesting theory, don't you think? It's definitely an interesting challenge, and, and trying to figure out what, where this will end up uh, is... Uh, this is definitely a topic for another show, I think. Um, anyway, we're down to five minutes to go, Ronaldo, and I thought maybe you want to perhaps begin as kind of a wrap-up of where we are with all of these facts. And, and again, maybe to try to end on an optimistic note of what we can actually do. Well, I'm, I'm Where would you take this as, as, uh, as our listeners and consumers and citizens of this country? Well, first of all, uh, get active politically. <clears throat> um, Write your congresspeople. Call your congresspeople. Call your senators. You've got to counteract the power, the, the destructive power of unlimited big money. Um, there, what we have to do is we have to be willing to realize that big money can buy as much television advertising as it wants, and we can't stop it yet because of a case which I predict will not stand. If the United States of America exists 100 years from today, Citizens United will not be the law of the land, I can assure you. But between now and then, we as citizens are going to have to do something to reverse the worst impacts of it. Second thing, start getting smart about this stuff, folks. You know, wouldn't you, be like, wouldn't you like to make 10 to 20% a year on your money like I make on mine and have been doing consistently year after year after year? 
Well, you can, but you've got to do your homework. And doing your homework means not only listening to shows like this, you've got to send your questions in. You've got to engage with us. So get involved. Read what we publish at the Academy. Listen to these programs. Challenge us to give you more specific information, not less. We had a great question that came in on, on who, who's on the other side of climate change. I'm glad that we got that question in. And others that you have picked up that we, we fed into this show today. So I really encourage people. I'm not, this is not something that's easy and that goes, it's like falling off a log. You know, I don't, get to, I don't get to spout off and talk about things I care about and quote all these statistics and all these different things because I'm playing golf every day. I really work at this. I work really, really hard. People in my office, people who know me, recognize the enormous hours I spend trying to absorb enough information to be successful in life and to be able to help my family do better day after day. I urge everybody to be the same. And I'm sorry that it's going to be a lot of work, but unfortunately, that's the state of our democracy, is it's a little bit out of control, and we're going to have to restore it. And that takes work. To quote a very famous line, this is no time for summer soldiers, uh, uh, what are they, uh, summer patriots, right? It, you got to be a patriot, in effect, 20, 12 months a year. It would, sunshine patriotism, meaning you're, you're only a patriot when sun is shining on you and things are good. That won't help. This, in some ways, has to be our valley forge. This is our dark tunnel we're coming through. And please remember this. As bad as it will look if we don't take action, it's ten times better than you can imagine if we do. Think about it. We're capable of creating an entire planetary fuel system within less than two decades. And by the way, these, th- these things are going to start to uh, erupt, as you will see in the next year or two. The, the, new, uh, the, the new vehicles are coming online starting in 2014. The Nissan Leaf is here already. The Volt is already here. The plug-in toy. Uh, Actually, they just pulled the plug on the Volt because well, of all their problems with the uh, fires. Well, they didn't pull the plug. What they did is they stopped production for, five, uh, for at least five weeks. I, I completely canceled the program. I don't believe they have. And the reason with the fire... No, I meant they, 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 they suspended it. For the yeah, well, let me tell you what that's about. Very simple, because the, the technology is actually quite good. What they did is they, did a cheap, they made a cheap mistake. They, they put plastic housing around the battery container in the Volt, and they should have used steel, and they knew it. For example, this problem doesn't exist with other cars where they do use steel, such as the, the Nissan Leaf. So in the crash tests, the, the batteries were not adequately protected. The type of lithium-ion batteries they have, have used can catch fire in a crash. So you want to you want to just protect them better. So they're doing the right thing, which is shutting down the production of the existing Volt, getting the right metal structure around those lithium-ion batteries. I, and I also, by the way, if there are anybody from Detroit listening, I'd like to challenge you. I think there are better versions of lithium-ion than the one you're using, and there are a number of companies around the country today that know how to make those better batteries. And if anybody wants to know what they are, I'll be happy to supply that information. But the truth is, just because we the, the one we started with in lithium-ion, the chemical composition we started with, Clearly not was not the superior one. There are non-heat-driven lithium-ion batteries available. That's where we ought to be going to avoid all these explosions and laptops like Sony's catching fire. Well, back to the conclusion. So the conclusion is, you know, on the one side you've got a precipice, and I, don't, I just really don't want to keep talking about that. On the other side, you've got heaven on earth. I, I, want, I want to make the following statement categorically. Every single person on the planet today alive is entitled to adequate clean clean water to, gr- to drink. No one's ever disagreed with me when I give them that statement in public. Everybody on the planet is entitled, it's their human right, to adequate nutrition. No one's ever disagreed with that. Every person on the planet has a human right to adequate medical care. No one's disagreed with that. 
Everyone has the right to adequate clothing, adequate shelter. No one disagrees with that. And outside of very intensely conservative fundamentalist Muslim communities, nobody agrees that we should, shouldn't have non-gender biased education for all. That doesn't mean you have to have the same education in Afghanistan that you have in Berkeley, California. Maybe in the West you have to have higher levels of education. But you have to have adequate levels of education for anything to happen, particularly for the status of women to change. Well, I could list eight, nine of these human rights that virtually nobody disagrees with. And then I'm going to give you the punchline, which is we're capable of creating that within my lifetime, and I'm 65. We're capable of creating that within the next 10 years or less if we chose to do it. And in doing it, we would become richer than we are today, every single one of us, including the people who are the recipients of that. So if you're tired of seeing 30,000 children die every day, which I am, for lack of access to potable water and uh, adequate um, nutrition and medical care, let's turn that around. Let's feed the children. Let's clothe the, let's clothe the, the naked. Let's feed the hungry. Let's create shelter for those who are, are, are unable to create it for themselves. Let's reverse climate change because the process of doing these things don't make, doesn't make us poor. It makes us incredibly richer. Last thought. When you think like I think, when you look at the data as hard as I do, it's clear to me that there are a very large number of sunrise industries, meaning industries that are about to become the dominant players in the future. And it's easier to avoid the sunset one. So if you believe, as I do, that it's a phenomenon that Google wasn't here 12 years ago, and it's now everywhere, and I could make similar comparisons to other companies, that no one saw that coming till it came, that's how big the whole successful track for the world could be if we chose to create it. So I say quit the silly politics, quit the cheap shots, quit being know-nothings, embrace the future, embrace that we can handle climate change, and get on with it, and let's get rich as Crocious in the process. Ronaldo, that all sounds very good and very positive. On this note, let me remind our listeners that we'll be back on the air in April, on the 12th of April, which is, again, the second Thursday of the month, and that if you have questions, and again, we do truly appreciate you sending in your questions, the address is info at worldbusiness.org. Send them there. Um, and we and one of the things, Howard, yeah. please, everybody who's listening, do us a favor and do yourself a favor. Let's get critical mass here. Tell at least five people between now and the next show what you heard. Tell them about the positive vision for the future. You don't have to dwell on what's going to happen if they don't embrace the future. You've heard bad enough about that. If you want to share it, share it. But go tell five people that there's this free program they can listen to. And let's get this community of us that are talking about these issues, let's get it larger. Let's become the new humanity, not the one that will be like Bob Lutz marching off to senility. Right, and one last reminder before we do sign off that you can track our information and our reports on a lot of these issues at the Academy's website, which is worldbusiness.org. Um, you also can view back or listen to back issues of the show. Uh, simply scroll down on the right side and click on the blog talk radio, um, and you'll find us there as well. With that, uh, Ronaldo, it's time to sign off. Uh, thank all of you for listening today. And thank you very much. Thank can- you, Howard. Also, thank you as well, and we hope to catch you next month. With that, I bid you all a good day. Bye-bye now.